Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McLenaghan and this is the second of two episodes exploring issues concerning the independent review of children's social care in England. Today, my guests and I will examine issues facing black and minoritised children in the care system and discuss the extent to which matters of equality, diversity and inclusion have been considered in the care review so far. And for today's discussion, I'm really pleased to be joined by Patrice Bentick, Senior Practitioner at Camden Council, and James Carbo, Fostering Team Manager, also from Camden Council. Patrice and James, how are you guys doing? Are you well? Really good, thanks. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Andy. Good. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, James. Patrice, you're well, yes? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having us. It's exciting. Okay, good. Hold that thought. Hopefully it is exciting for the next 45 minutes. Um, so just before we kick off, I, I just want to explain uh, to listeners, we had really hoped to be joined for this episode by James Blewett. Uh, James is the chair of the Baswa England Children and Families Group. But unfortunately, because of an unavoidable change in circumstances, this isn't going to be possible. But I just want to say before we start a big thank you to James for the help he gave in shaping this episode of the podcast. So I've really been looking forward to making this episode since we made the first episode on the care review and that was back in July. I think it went online on the 23rd of July. Shortly before we made that episode, the review team uh, published the Case for Change document and it set out the independent review of children's social care, their initial thoughts about what needs to change in children's social care system in England. Now, Baswa submitted its response to the case for change and it cited concerns around various issues ranging from a lack of children's rights perspective to a failure to acknowledge the impact of austerity. And those are all issues that we discussed in the previous episode. And if anyone hasn't listened to it, I'd really encourage you to go back and uh, take time to, to dig into that. But during that conversation, Becca Pierre, um, my wonderful colleague from Baswa, England, she noted that although the Case for Change document acknowledged at a surface level issues of structural racism, there was a lack of deep engagement on these issues or any tangible commitment to addressing them. And it's this matter that we're going to explore in more detail now. James, Patrice, when you read the Case for Change document at first, what was your view in terms of how the review has considered issues of equality, diversity and inclusion? So as a whole, I feel that they could have been given a bit more attentiveness towards allowing black professionals, practitioners, children, young people and their families to have their voice really truly heard in the case for change. I feel that it's very statistic based. There's a lot of quantitative data but lacking a lot of qualitative data. Um, and just really, we're not hearing the voice of the community come through at all, um, which is just such a shame because this is the perfect place really to hear, to hear people express and to hear people give their views and just to even talk to some of the intricate aspects of support that they need. Um, I feel that, in terms of the complexities around race, diversity, culture, inclusion, they've just been brushed over 
when you think about the social graces and we think about how complex one social grace, let alone um, like intersectionality and the way multiple social graces overlap, it's just not given real thought in, in the report, in my opinion. Patrice, that term social graces, not everyone might understand what that means. Could you explain? Mm. Sure. So social graces, um, without going into too much theory, and, and um, I think um, really it's about the different aspects of who we are and where that comes from. For example, culture, uh, geography, class, age, gender, sexual orientation, sexual preference, even appearance. And then intersectionality is about when multiple social graces overlap. So my point was thinking about how those separate social graces impact people and then thinking about how complex life can get when those are overlapping and intertwining intersectionality in, intersectionally can be just very challenging. Thanks, Patrice. Uh, James, thinking of the report then, you know, how would you have liked to have seen equality, diversity and inclusion discussed in the case for change? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I sort of echo a lot of what Patricia said. I think really amplifying the voices of, you know, black children, children from other ethnic um, minorities, amplifying the voice of the black social worker, amplifying the voice of the black foster carer. I felt like it was um, skimming the surface. And um, it set out a lot of sort of quantitative um, information, which is needed because um, it is a case. And I get that they're building a case for change. So that is needed. But I think it really needed to go a lot deeper. I think that, you know, off the back of, you know, just some of the things that have happened in society over the last 12 months, we've had um, the Euros and the reaction to free black players missing penalties. Um, I think that we need to be really um, clear about how we're going to address that in, in society, in social care. How do we explain that to our, our foster children? Um, and I just felt like it could go a lot deeper in regards to sort of equalities, diversity and inclusion. Um, so I think that would be the next step. Thanks, James. When you talk about amplifying voices, what, you know, in terms of mechanisms to actually have people involved, have their views listened to, you know, this, these aren't going to be people that are used to writing a consultation response to government consultation. Sure. So how do you do that? How do you make sure that those voices are heard and heard in a meaningful way? No, that's a, that's a really great question. I think we, you need a diverse approach. So you need um, to try a number of things, focus groups, perhaps you need, um, on, you need to use social media because that's what's really current, whether it's um, uh, Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever it is, whatever the sort of online platform is. I think that one-to-one -one interviews would be great. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are a few things off the top of my head. I can think of sort of focus groups, interviews, um, sort of larger consultations, um, I think would go a long way to capturing some of what's missing from the, the case for change at the moment. And I suppose a lot of that stuff will work as well with practitioners. It'll work probably with foster families. But when you're looking at the kids that are in care and how marginalised they are, how vulnerable they may be feeling, getting them involved in that process, that's going to be a challenge as well, isn't it? Absolutely, because trust has been, you know, trust is really fragile. With When we talk about, you know, some of our most vulnerable children in society, um, the, the trust is quite fragile. So I think that that process needs to be given a lot of thought. Um, and part of the process will be sort of repairing some of that trust so that people feel comfortable to come forward mm -hmm. and sort of speak. 
But but they will come forward and speak, and that's the thing, you know. Um, young people, we work the young people that we work with in Camden, they have come forward and expressed their views. I know we're going to talk a bit about that later, but um, with everything that's happened over the last year, um, children and young people are feeling much more empowered to come forward and talk about how they feel, what they think. Families are feeling more listened to and wanting to come forward and talk about their positioning. I think we just need to give them the opportunity to do that. Patrice, you and James both lead on anti-racist social work within Camden's Children's Services. So I'm, I'm really keen to learn more about what those roles entail. Patrice, could you tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. So over the last year, I have been working with a close group of people to set up safe spaces in different parts of uh, children's services and creating space for us to take action and creating space for us to uh, think about how to encourage one another to focus on our practice and improve our practice in an anti-racist way. One of the first things we've done is set up a Reflect, Reclaim, Rebuild group. We have two of these groups. One is for Black and ethnic practitioners of multiple levels and multiple um, workforces. So we come together to think about our Black workforce and actually what is needed in terms of action and progression for Black people to feel supported, um, for Black people to feel listened to, valued. So thinking about progression, thinking about staff engagement, morale, um, creating a space where we can challenge racist uh, practice or creating a space where we can challenge harassment and just smaller, uh, like microaggressions, smaller things that happen in the workplace that are just not acceptable. The second Reflect, Rebuild, Reclaim group is a practice space for all practitioners, whether they are Black, White or any other ethnic group, to come together and focus on developing. So we look at different aspects of our practice And it could be social graces that we've referred to earlier. It could be vaccine hesitancy, where we discuss um, how are we in this place with our community? What do we need to do to support them? Where is the learning here? And we bring different things to the space to discuss. Um, Those two are huge for me personally, because I feel like um, Black practitioners are really coming together. People are meeting people for the first time. Um, they're feeling supported. They're feeling valued. And then we have uh, white staff who are like opening up and saying, I'm learning something new that I just never thought existed. Um, it's quite powerful. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Patrice. James, in terms of your work. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of consultation with our foster carers and really the the aim is to establish how we can be a better corporate parent to our black, Asian and other minority ethnic looked after children. Um, and that really is um, about creating a safe space to broach what has been a sort of very difficult conversation at times to have. Um, creating a safe space to be really honest and frank about how how foster carers feel um, in their role Um giving them the tools to feel empowered to actually tackle racism when the young people they care for might report it to them. Um, Giving them a space to talk about hair care, giving them a space to talk about skin care, giving them a space to talk about, um, you know, how they do the discussions with their young people about 
George Floyd or about protests or about racial abuse towards football players. Um, so I feel really passionately about this because I think foster carers are, you know, they are the care providers to the next generation. Um, and we, it's really important that we engage them in this um, conversation. And James, do we have a shortfall in the number of foster carers from black and minoritized ethnic communities? I think um, nationally that that definitely sort of plays out. I think we're a bit fortunate in Camden in that we do have quite a diverse sort of representation across our cohort. But there is always an ongoing need to make sure that we have a cohort of foster carers that really reflects the communities we serve. Um, and that conversation needs to continue. We need to um, continuously get together and think about how we reach out to you know, certain communities, how we sort of promote fostering and spread the message of fostering really to make sure we attract um, a diverse range of people because that's what's going to best serve our young people. Okay, so when we look at the demographics of uh, children in care, uh, in 2020, there were 80,000 children in care. 7% of them were black. But when you look at the population, there's only 3.8% of the UK population, sorry, of the English population is black. Now, by comparison, Asian children are underrepresented in care. There's 4% of the care population are Asian, whereas 8.4% of the population um, is Asian. So why can you, do you have any insight into why there is this disproportionate um, number of black children in care? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's a big, a sort of big question. I think uh, there's a lot in that. I think that obviously um, racism I think that um, the thresholds might be sort of easier to hit for, you know, where there's concerns around black families. I think that actually understanding the nuance in terms of um, the risks involved with sort of um, black children and, and black families, um, we need a diverse range of social workers to be able to understand that and interpret that and provide the right support. Um, so I think that... Um, yeah, there's there's a there's a big need to really understand that a bit more, um, and ensure that sort of the right services are being offered, and that black families are getting every opportunity to remain and to stay together. Um, and that's that's what I want to ask you: Is there enough focus on early intervention and family support with black families, or do you think there was a rush to bring children into care? Is that is that is that what you're saying? I I, I think that plays out. I really do believe that plays out. I think that. In terms of black families, I think, you know, there's a number of statistics around, let's say, for example, school exclusions for um, black boys and the interpretation of their behavior in school. Um, the responses can be quite disproportionate at times. And I think we really need to look at that and we need to name that. Um, and similarly, I think with concerns with child protection matters, you know, it is a case that actually black children are probably removed at a faster pace. Um, and in terms of, their accessing of services, we need to look at really, are these services being offered? Are they fit for purpose? Um, what are some of the barriers that might prevent black um, families from accessing these services? Um, we spoke about trust um, a bit earlier in the conversation. Um, and I do believe there is a lot of mistrust along amongst black families. Um, and part of our work needs to be actually repairing that relationship um, that rapport between black families and services available. So I just want to come on, you mentioned the issue around exclusions from schools um, and I was just very quickly pulling up a, a stat. It was, a, it was an article I'd read earlier in the week and it's that um, 
black girls are more likely, twice as likely to be um, excluded from schools than white girls. Um, so black Caribbean girls in England, twice as likely to be excluded from schools as white girls. It's a he- headline from The Guardian. So you were saying about behaviours being misinterpreted, James. Could you give us an example? Because this, I don't want to kind of totally shift focus away from um, issues facing uh, black children in care, but obviously schooling is, is going to be uh, a vital component um, uh, as well. What When you said about um, misunderstanding or misinterpretation of behaviours, could you give us an example? Sure. I mean, I think that in terms of some of the stereoty- stereotypes that exist around black people, I mean, one of the, the biggest ones we've heard over the years is black people being more aggressive. Um, how does that play out? Uh, a police officer sees a black man, you know, he's uh, judged to have committed a crime and there's a knee put on his neck. That is a very disproportionate response to the behaviour. Perhaps if he was a white man, he would have been handcuffed, he would have been taken to um, taken into custody and he would still be alive now, still would have lived to tell the tale. How does that play out in school? Um, a black child, sort of, you know, a bit of rough and tough, a bit of sort of, uh, you know, rough play in the classroom is probably more likely to be interpreted as more dangerous. How does that play out? They're then more likely to be excluded. And we know that when children are excluded from school, they are open to a number of risks. And I think school is a microcosm of society. So what plays out in school is very important in sort of shaping under somebody's feeling of inclusion in society. Um, so I think one of the things we really need to look at is when we talk about inclusion is how we're we ensuring that actually black families really feel included, really feel that their behavior and the consequences will be equal. Um, because I think that's going to go a long way towards sort of getting us to where we need to be. Thanks, James. And Patricia, I just turning to you, in terms of social workers understanding the unique needs of black and minoritized children, you know, I want to talk about good practice as well as bad practice. Are there examples um, from your work where you can point to good practice where social workers are doing really good work and, and properly understanding and properly supporting children that are in their care? Yeah, sure. So um, I, um, I personally manage some really reflective social workers, very proud to say that. And um, there's a lot of work being done around cultural genograms understanding the history, understanding the child's journey, understanding their experiences, and then in turn also understanding the family's journey and the family's experiences. So, for example, um, physical chastisement. We know that different cultures have different ways of disciplining, but, you know, when social workers are taking the time to understand the history of that family the journey, their culture, where that comes from, we then understand what the risk being posed to the child really means within that household and not just within our mind or from our personal perspective or from a Western or generally general English way of parenting at home. Um, and when you're spending that time or social workers are spending that time and their, and their child protection plans are heavily linked to that, They are really tailored around the children, really tailored around supporting the parents to think differently, parent differently in a way that is child focused and not just from their personal experiences. 
And the outcomes for children end up being so much better. We have children that stay with their parents and they stay at home or they're reunited back home. Um, One of my social workers just reunited a baby with his mum and we've taken taken him off of a care care plan, which is great. You know, um, we're going to support mum for the next year and hopefully close the case. And that's real beautiful work. And social workers, Mel Bangali, Mum is um, female, black, African, Somali, different cultures completely, but there's been time taken there to really understand her viewpoint, what she's been through, how that impacts her parenting. And I think as a whole, there's something about history not being spoken about in social work. So when we think about colonialism and we think about slavery and we think about Um, how that has had an impact on the black community. And actually, we look at the Windrush generation, which is the Caribbeans that came here in the 50s and 60s, and how all of this has impacted on parenting. These are really key, significant parts of a child or family's life. Is that sufficiently being integrated now into practice because I'm aware that that is in terms of like public discourse and that has come to the fore and there's much much greater awareness and we've been talking about you know over the summer issues around racism that are coming so much more to the fore and that I suppose are becoming so much harder for people that want to ignore them to ignore them but in terms of them actually integrating into practice those cultural understandings is that happening Patrice um, and is it happening fast enough? I feel it's happening more um I think things like tools like cultural genograms, tree of life, all of these really practical tools are helping practitioners to integrate this into their practice. Probably not happening fast enough. Um, We would have it happen now, tomorrow if we could. Um, But I think that, yeah, it's happening. Um, We're talking about it more. For example, James and I were talking a lot about Uh, the social graces and risk and how they link closely together when we're we're thinking about supervision and group supervision. So there's a lot of systemic spaces taking place um, and it is starting to be integrated into practice. Um, But yes, I think we need more time for sure. If we move on to the views of children, so you guys are both working directly with children, um, what are the key messages from black and minoritized looked after children with regard to their experiences of care and what needs to change? Well, I can speak from a sort of a fostering angle. I think that obviously it's well publicized that there's a, a national shortage of foster carers. I think that, you know, when we, when we hear from children, often one of the sort of most striking feedbacks is where children have had to sort of move to multiple placements um, and that happens for a number of reasons because either, you know, the foster carer uh, gives notice on the placement or, um, you know, the placement isn't uh, an appropriate match. But actually, I think what we need to be looking at is how to make sure we are really sort of spreading the message of fostering and um, making sure that there's, um, you know, a good portrayal of, of fostering available on mainstream media, um, a, m- a much better sort of representation of social care um, in the media as well because I think at times it can be quite negative um, which then and are we seeing are we seeing bad examples of fostering on the media well I think there there isn't enough um, representation on on mainstream television about the world of fostering and I think what that creates is room for a lot of myths 
Um, and there is definitely a need to sort of dispel a lot of those myths um, because I think that a lot of people who would be interested in fostering might actually be lacking in some of the information to take those next steps. Um, so one of the things that I, I think in terms of the case for change and, and, and some of the things we could action is actually, you know, mainstream representation, uh, more information for the general public around fostering. Um, and putting more of a sort of positive spin on that. Thank you, James. Patrice, in terms of the children you're working with, what are you hearing from them? So I've got a few quotes here, um, really powerful, actually beautiful things. But, you know, a lot of the young people in Camden um, feel that it's having a global impact, just as a whole, racism is having a huge global impact. But they're screaming for their voices to be heard. And... They feel that they need a place to breathe, express, be themselves, explore different aspects of themselves and feel accepted. And for young people to say that is huge, the way they can articulate that themselves. Um, They also said that they feel that they need support physically, emotionally and spiritually, which is huge. Um, A lot of them understand their history Um, And they've done a lot of reading, for example, like the Windrush. And they understand that their grandparents were told that the streets are paved with gold, literally, and you should come here. And how that has an impact on their spiritual spiritual well-being and emotional well-being and mental well-being. Um, Yeah, and they feel like they want more resources as a whole, like audio books, Um, community podcasts and they feel that we need as a whole society um, we need to have the challenging conversations and that they want to be part of the challenging conversations um, which I think is great and I think as a whole sometimes even practitioners might feel oh this this young person isn't grown enough for this conversation or Um, might be too emotional for this conversation or how do I have this conversation with this young person and actually they're screaming for social workers to just sit down and be honest and be real with them about society and I suppose that sorry yeah yeah Never. I was going to say that takes us back to the the issue we we're talking about at the start and how do you actually integrate the views of young people into the care of you is that where you were going Patricia that's exactly um, where yes, I was going sorry I need no to, yes. um I wanted to go back to it because there's two key things that I know that the um, review are keen on talking about is early help and obviously corporate parenting. And I think listening to young people and just thinking about practice, it's so key for corporate parenting to be focused on the child that they are parenting. So for example, if it is a black child that you are parenting, you need to be the best corporate parent for that black child and not just tokenistic and and um, think about hair care, skin care, cultural festivities, carnivals, stuff like that, which is great, food. But actually, how are you preparing this young black child to navigate through a society that's systemically racist? Every aspect of their life that they face, services, schools, nursery, from like health and NHS, everything is systemically built to be racist against them. How are you preparing this child to manoeuvre through that? And when you're thinking about other social graces like um, class and geography, it could be an unaccompanied minor that's travelling from 
somewhere in Eastern Europe that presents as white Eastern Europe, right? How are you preparing that young person and understanding that person to still maneuver through a system that is against them anyway? Um, Patrice, do you feel that social workers in general are sufficiently well aware of that structural racism? Because if you're talking about preparing a child to um, work within that system, you need to be aware of what that system looks like in the first place. So for a white person who doesn't have to struggle with any of those um, impediments and barriers because of your white privilege, that's part of the problem. You don't see it. You don't know it's there. So is enough being done to educate social workers of those issues? I studied at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and they are really community social work based. Um, and we have amazing people like Dr. Claudia, Claudia Bernard, and the late Palita Harris. So I was fortunate to have some of those conversations, even though I would have those growing up. And so um, people who had different like sexual orientations or sexual preferences or what have you, we were constantly having those discussions at uni. I don't, I can't speak for every university course, but I know that unis are doing a little bit more now to try and teach social workers these I mean, we talk about anti-oppressive practice and anti-discriminatory practice from day one. We shouldn't need a whole new anti-racist practice title to cover racism because it's already in there. We we know it. Um, I think some social workers obviously won't know the depth of some of the things we're talking about, whether black or not, actually. Some black social workers still won't, won't understand or, or won't have done that work. But we have a responsibility to do that, to search, to, to read, to even just be quiet and listen, listen, your families will tell you. If you don't understand something, be curious, question, be open, be open to not being the person with the power in the room because social workers, we hold so much power for a minute. You have to be ready to relinquish that and truly be the person that has the less knowledge in the room, the least knowledge in the room. Something I've learned from making this series over and over again is about asking questions and not being afraid to ask questions, um, being open. Um, but there is so often a fear of getting something wrong, saying something stupid. And that's a fear you need to get over because that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, that's a fear which essentially protects you. Now, that's really, really helpful, Patricia. I want to talk about mental health. Now, it's well documented that looked after children are more likely to experience poor mental health. Um for example, back in 2017, I think it was Bernardo's published research, which highlighted that 46% of its care leavers had mental health needs. And we know that racism and abuse can have a negative impact on mental health as well. So when those two issues are combined, you know, a child living in care, a child experiencing racism, what does that mean for the mental health um, of a black looked after child or a child from another ethnic minority background? I think, I think that's, um, that's a really excellent um sort of question because I think that it's a double whammy I think they are grappling with the stigmas that come along with being in care the sort of um, difficult life story um, that many many children may have um, but they're also navigating sort of the the pressures and sometimes trauma that comes with with blackness um, as a result of racism and navigating um, uh, sort of racial inequality so I think that you know it's um it's no surprise that you know many care le- care leavers sort of struggle with um their sort of emotional well-being and their mental health um because they are grappling with two very heavy um 
two very heavy stones, if you like, um, mm-hmm. and trying to sort of make sense of how to how to exist and operate and thrive in in a world that has positioned them um, in quite a, a difficult position. And so you're seeing this in your work day to day. Is this is this some, this is reality? Yeah, absolutely. This plays out, and I, and I think the really sad part, Andy, is that for some children, they may not equate um, uh, racial trauma and the stigma of being in care to why they feel what they feel. Um, they may communicate those difficulties through their behaviors and through self-sabotaging um, and through sort of low self-esteem, um, poor self-care. It may come out in a number of ways that actually at the time they may not um, realize, um, but it's definitely two big things that uh, our sort of looked after children need a lot of support with um, and, and hence why I feel so strongly about the role of foster carers and professionals um, because it's something that it needs to be out there in the open to have a frank conversation about it and let's let's not kid ourselves it won't be fixed in one conversation um, but I feel that by having a culture that's more open we can actually start to heal rather than that being something that's sort of swept under the rug. I want to add something going back to like school and exclusions. Um, and if we think about a young person, for example, a young white girl who's lost her granddad at 10, 11, and she has a change in behaviour in school and she's supported to like work through that. She might get some cams or some low level like place to be counselling work. And then we think about maybe a black girl who has been separated from her home, experienced some sexual abuse or domestic abuse. And then on top of that, she has all of these external things happening in society. You have to be so resilient to be able to function like a normal teenager. Um, and I think that that is like a highlight as to how much maybe some black children have to go through. Um, and instead of seeing being seen as children going through these challenges, they're just seen as problems or aggressive or angry or... And then add to that the, the issue of adultification. Yeah. We, we touched on this earlier, but I want to explore in a bit more uh, detail. So we know there's a lot of evidence to suggest that black children are victims of adultification. Um, and I'm going to try to explain that, but please correct me if I get this wrong. It's where they're treated more harshly compared to children of a similar age of development who are white, um, for example. Um, have you seen this in action in the care system? Did I, sorry, was my definition correct, first of all? Yeah, I think it's that, but it it might not always be in comparison to another child. It's just if a child is a victim or um, experience something as a child, it's just us as professionals treating them as an adult instead of treating them as children and i mean when you think about things something like stop and search especially in london you know and that being a really prime example of the the racial profiling and and adultification of of young black men but that's law enforcement within social work and within the care system are you seeing adultification play out as well within your profession i would say sometimes yes i think um child sexual exploitation um, child criminal exploitation, they're key aspects of where children are treated as adults. So if um, a young person is being exploited or coerced to um, be 
involved in sexually harmful behaviour or criminality, instead of looking at that young person as a child and a victim in that situation, it's, oh, he's streetwise or she's streetwise. He is selling drugs to make money. He just wants to get extra trainers. He doesn't want to go to school. He wants fast money. He wants it now. He just wants to be grow up too soon. You know, these are comments that you might hear. Um, For example, girls who may be sexually abused by their peers, it might be that actually she's just promiscuous or um, streetwise or she, she knows what she's doing when actually this young girl's just been raped and she's underage in terms of like statutory age. So she can't consent anyway. How are we even... How are we even conversing about this? It's not even an option for her to be making the choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd agree. I, I think that in terms of the adultification of, of Black children, I think that absolutely plays out. And I think what that invites is a, a, a harsher response, a more disproportionate response. And I think, you know, when we talk about the knee on the neck, I think that has almost become a, a metaphor for um, that disproportionate response that Black people and Black children have felt. Um, and I think adultification is a big part of that because it's that sort of lacking in the empathy you would have towards a child, sort of the grace you might give to a child because they're only a child is, is missing somewhat. Um, and, and that sort of behavior is interpreted in a more sort of um, harsh harsh way which then leads to a more harsh consequence it's the removal of their innocence like removing their innocence from the situation so for example we had a 14 year old black boy that was arrested or stopped and stopped and searched the other day um, I can't remember what part of London it was but he was handcuffed so tight in his school uniform that his the cuffs of his shirts were bleeding like there was blood all over the cuffs of his shirts and he's like 14 and some and whether he's a big 14 or small 14 doesn't even matter but actually how can you look at this small child and think he's such a monster that you deserve he deserves all that and then on top of that the officers broke his nose and it was awful um and you know that a case like that would say okay we can look at it and say it's awful but maybe that alert comes into children's services and we're like, oh, what has he done? That kind of response, you know, where the first response should always be, actually, this child's been arrested. Why has this child been arrested? Did he really need to be handcuffed, let alone that tight? Even if he ran away, is the crime that big of a deal that we really needed to pin him down, break his bones, have his nose bleeding? I I don't think so. And again, Patrice, is that that's not going to be an uncommon occurrence from your perspective? Um, n- no. I mean, for me, I'm not shocked when I hear these things. I'm saddened because another person in my community is going through something. But I would say that I'm, I am a little bit numbed to some of the things that happen because I've been black for 34 years. So I didn't, I wasn't just black last year, like become black last year when George Floyd died, like, I can't even remember the names of the amount of black people that have died worldwide, let alone locally, um, because we have lost a lot of black people in police custody here, regardless of the fact that we don't carry guns 
And that is telling, you know, for a police officer, for you to die in police custody here, you would have to be beaten severely because we don't shoot here. James, Patricia, I asked a question earlier about awareness amongst the social work workforce of um, uh, issues of racism. But in relation to training, you know, to what extent is anti-racist training being delivered to social workers? You know, is it is it sufficiently embedded in social work courses for students? And more than that, is it is it is something which is present in terms of training for social workers that are in practice? I think that we are moving in the right direction. I think that I have um, definitely noticed a more considerable effort to embed anti-racist training in the sort of core requirements, the core trainings for social workers. Um, you know, definitely at Camden, that there's been a, a real sort of significant effort to do that, and it's been really well received. Um, I must say, if I think back to my social work training, I think it was quite lacking in terms of the sort of anti-racist um, aspects, in terms of sort of some historical context, and so in terms of um, just looking at the way racism plays out in society and the impact for families. I feel like there's definitely room for um, embedding some more of that at a really early stage for um, prospective social workers. Where did you study, James? I studied at the University of Greenwich. Okay. okay. So, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would say that there's definitely room for, for, for improvement in that. And then in terms of foster carers? Are foster carers getting, you know, are they getting the support they need? Are they getting the training they need to, uh, in, in terms of anti-racism? Foster carers are getting the training. So definitely there's at least uh, two training events each year that are dedicated to anti-racism. I think one of the things that we are really trying to work on, though, is the engagement in those trainings. And, and by that, I mean not just turning up, but actually, actually actively um, engaging. And I mean, uh, not just for the black foster carers, but for the white foster carers to actually remain really curious in there and really see themselves as having a role. Because um, uh, I think sometimes in discussions around racism, it can almost feel like, you know, a lot of the black people doing a lot of the talking and perhaps the white people doing more of the listening. But actually, it's... Um, it's an issue that actually needs all of us to come to the table and all of us to be comfortable speaking about our identity and how that either enables or disables racism. So I think that what we are really working on is actually the engagement in those um, training events and them not just being a one-off, but them being an ongoing conversation, something that continues in the support group and in other forums as well. I suppose because to think that you can dismantle such a huge problem in one session. You know, so I, I appreciate that. Yes, the, the ongoing nature of this. And Patrice, I'm just looking back to earlier in the conversation. I think I remember you talking about decolonization of social work education curriculums. I, I got that right, didn't I? Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay. Cool. So, in terms of in terms of that work, how far along is that, and how successful has it been? So I know I have colleagues who are working in uh, universities across London um, and outside of London, really working hard to challenge the curriculum to make sure that anti-racist practice is included. I know that it is working and they are um, succeeding. However, we have really just started this work. Um, even at Camden, when we think about including our newly qualified social workers into a lot of the anti-racist work, it's happening. 
However, I know that there are people that have been at Camden for years um, who feel that a lot of this work has already been done. And I think social workers and practitioners nationally do feel that we have regressed from if we think about the 80s and the activism that used to take place in social work. I feel that a lot of that activism is coming back now. Um, a lot of the conversations that used to happen, they're coming back now. Um, and it f- the feel of community social work is is being relived a little when we've moved away a lot from that over the past 10 years. Um, and it's I think it's a nice time to be practicing at the moment. Good. And just in terms of the decolonization of education, it's not just a social work issue. Mm. My first degree was in politics. And I remember we do a module, uh, sort of standard uh, first year module, Western political thought, and you're learning the the views of dead white men. Uh, and th- those are the views that have basically structured our society. So occasionally you would uh, learn the views of a white woman, but that was about as far as it went. Um, and, you know, I that was terrifyingly 20 years ago. Um, I don't know how much things have changed, um, you know, in those 20 years. I haven't been back to university. Um, well, I haven't studied politics at university since. But yes, it's it's got to be more, if we're talking about how we actually affect the way society thinks, the way people view our structures, um, how, how society is set up, established, who it works for, who it doesn't work for. We need to be decolonizing much more than social work education. Yeah, it just needs to be a zero tolerance way of thinking, way of working, way of functioning in all aspects of life. Honestly, I think um, this is key. Young people who we've worked with in Camden, has all, they also wrote and said we want a zero tolerance, like no tolerance of racist practice or, and it's not just racism, it's all the isms, you know, Um, let people be free, let people be who they are, let people do what they want to do and don't stereotype or punish them or have expectations of them because they might be slightly different to you. And that's really helpful. We're going to wrap up, but we're talking about the views of the young people you're working with. So to finish, what recommendations do you hope to see as a result of the review with regards to the support that's offered to black and minoritized children um, in the care system? Top one, start with the top one. I think for me, Andy, it would be around um, youth services and early help. I think that um, it's really important that we sort of break down some of those barriers to accessing uh, you know, community services. And we really sort of, review whether they are still fit for purpose um who is truly enabled by them and who um might be excluded by them i think that would be my my number one recommendation thank you james patrice your number one i would like to see more black focused um organizations really um take part in that early help process that i know has been written about and spoken about quite strongly. Um, I believe that needs to be more representation of black and ethnic professionals um, higher up in the ladder in in multiple organizations and local authorities. And I think um, more attention paid to how we get to understand our families from from that the foundation is missing. So how can we really give the service that they need when we're just not understanding the foundation? So I think more organisations of colour, 
more um, heads of services of colour, more managers of colour, people that make the decisions need to have more people of colour in the room and not just one token person. Because if I was in the room, I can't speak for all black people. I am black. Their black experience is so, is so varied. So there needs to be a variation of black people in the space. And that's something I definitely want to make an episode on at some stage. We've touched on it in previous episodes, but the barriers that, that, that limit the opportunities then for progression of black practitioners is something which we've touched on before and is a huge issue. Um, it's just one that I don't think we have time to do justice to if we begin to speak about it now. But Patrice, perhaps sure. you'll come. Will you come back? I would love to. James, you come back? I'd love to. Good man, good man. Well, listen, before we do wrap up, finally, um, social workers are listening to this. We know. Social workers are listening to this podcast and thank you for listening. Um, but this is this review is massively significant um, and we want people to be able to feed into it. We want people to be able to make a change. Patrice, how can social workers that are listening to this podcast feed into this review? How can they make their voice heard? Well, um, Baswa has the Black and Ethnic Professional Symposium. We're a closed group of Black and Ethnic social workers, managers, practitioners come together to really focus on change for social workers in the community. Please get in touch with us um, and we can connect. Also, there's so many other little pockets of Baswa. Please connect with Baswa as a whole. If you're not registered, register. It's a beautiful place to be um, and an amazing place to get your voice heard. They also have their EDI group. Um, that you can connect and meet with there and make your voice heard and see what great things they're doing. Um, and also, like, we're all on Twitter, so please connect with us personally on Twitter um, and we can connect you into other things going on nationally too, whether in London or out of London. There is a world outside London. Thank you, Patrice. Thank you, James. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking part. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us.